it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, October 7, 2022. Happy Friday. Welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. I am your host, Guy Benson, political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on this weekend with Howie Kurtz, Media Buzz, on Sunday on Fox News Channel. Looking forward to that. Our website here is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is always free on demand after the show. So we air 3 to 6 Eastern. When the show's over, it becomes a podcast totally free on demand for all of you. And many of you are availing yourself of that opportunity. In fact, growing numbers of you, and we're very appreciative of that. GuyBensonShow.com. On social media, at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. We've got a big lineup for you today, starting with, later this hour, Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, up for re-election in November. Looking forward to catching up with Senator Rubio. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, down in a border district. He's invited the vice president, who's in the neighborhood, to come down to the border. Has he heard back from her? The border czar. We'll find out from Congressman Gonzalez. Bill Whalen, an expert here at the Hoover Institution, he follows California politics as closely as anyone else. Since we're out here in California and the governor of this state obviously wants to be president, we will talk to Bill about what's happening out here on the left coast. And in our final hour, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, former national security advisor under President Trump, he will be here for an extended conversation on foreign policy. So we are extremely busy today on this Friday, broadcasting, as I mentioned, from the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California, here on the campus, a beautiful campus of Stanford University. Not far from California, neighboring state, is Arizona. Big Senate race and a governor's race out there as well, brewing in the desert. And we've had Blake Masters on this show recently. He's the Republican nominee for Senate. Last night they had a debate between Masters and the incumbent, Mark Kelly. I think there was also a libertarian on the stage. I only saw clips between the two main candidates, the Republican and the Democrat, Masters and Kelly, back and forth. Kelly is the sitting senator. He has been a rubber stamp yes vote for Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden every step of the way. Unlike Kirsten Sinema, who occasionally bucks the party, who occasionally stands behind her promise to govern as a moderate and try to be bipartisan, Mark Kelly isn't really interested in that. And the polls tend to show Masters, the Republican challenger, trailing by two to five points. Now, could that be correct? Could he be down even substantially? Perhaps. Kelly has dropped tens of millions of dollars on his head. I mean, the the fundraising gap is not even close in this race. That being said, I saw a new CNN poll, I think, had Masters down five, something like that. CNN poll also got the Florida governor's race totally wrong in 2018. They had Andrew Gillum up big in October, and he lost famously to Ron DeSantis. So 
I'm just saying hold your horses on people writing off Arizona. I think there are some other very important contests out there. We talk about them all the time. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, don't sleep on North Carolina. That's one that the Republicans need to hang on to. There are plenty of races, Nevada obviously a very, very big one. Plenty of places out there to keep an eye on and to keep tabs on. We're doing that. Arizona, I think, is somewhere near the upper tier, if not in the upper tier, of pickup opportunities for the GOP. And with that said, I want to play some sound from last night's debate. Not only because I'm interested in the race. We're not an Arizona-based show. We, of course, have listeners in Arizona. We've got listeners all over that state. But because I think Blake Masters, the Republican, who's a novice, first-time candidate, as are so many of these Republicans in some of these important races, he did his homework. He clearly prepared carefully for this debate. And he came loaded for bear as the non-incumbent. At times he had Mark Kelly, I think, back on his heels. Kelly, at certain junctures of the debate, seemed a little bit, At a loss for words, maybe shell-shocked, not sure how to respond to some of these points that Masters was making. He also, you know, had his own moments as well. But for a first-time candidate in a critical debate that I hope will resonate, because I think Masters did quite well, he gave some answers and prosecuted a case that I think other Republicans around the country would benefit from watching and taking notes. So one thing that... Mark Kelly, the Democrat, wants to make the entire election about is abortion. He wants to say that Blake Masters is an extremist and the Republicans are radicals on abortion, so please come vote for me because I support a woman's right to choose. That is an overwhelming argument from Mark Kelly. And Blake Masters did exactly what we have been urging Republicans to do, which is anticipate that, recognize that's a big message that the Democrats are running with, and then fight back, combat it. And he did in Cut 20. I'm pro-life, and that means I believe in limits. Now, I support exceptions because I don't believe in being extreme on this issue. Senator Mark Kelly is the abortion radical. Senator Kelly, in Washington, he voted. No, actually, he sponsored. He didn't just vote for it. He sponsored a bill that would have mandated legal abortion nationwide, get this, up until the moment of birth. Take a second to think about how truly radical that is. Mark Kelly says any abortion is okay for any reason, all the way up until the moment a baby is due to be born. He wasn't the only radical who voted for that bill. He was joined by Elizabeth Warren, by Bernie Sanders. AOC voted for this in the House. And the only countries in the whole world that support Senator Kelly's preferred no limits, extreme abortion policy are China and North Korea. Yes, more of that, please, Republican candidates around the country. Masters also talked about some limits in the later terms of pregnancy. He said, look, you know, at some point, six, seven, eight months in, it's just a baby. And the overwhelming majority of Americans agree with that. So if the Democrats want to make the whole election about abortion, which they're trying to do more or less in Arizona and elsewhere, Masters is like, okay, I'm pro-life. I believe in limits. I also support exceptions. I don't want to be extreme on this. Unlike my opponent, here is his extremism. Boom, boom, boom. Well done.
Now, Arizona is also a border state, obviously. The border crisis is raging. It has been throughout the Biden presidency because of Biden's policies. Occasionally, Mark Kelly will say something about it or put out a press release, but he's not meaningfully doing anything. So Masters really went on offense on the border crisis as well. Listen first to Cut 21. Well, call me old-fashioned, but I think the correct amount of illegal immigration is zero. That's what federal law says. The problem is that Joe Biden and Mark Kelly are willfully ignoring federal law. They've surrendered our southern border. They've given it up to the Mexican drug cartels. We had operational control two years ago, and now it's just a complete disaster. They incentivize people to break the law. Illegal aliens, when they come here, they're supposed to be caught and deported back to their home country or back to some other country that wants them. But no, Joe Biden and Mark Kelly, they laid out the welcome mat. This is the greatest country in the history of the world. If you invite everybody to come here, you'll create a crisis. And so five million illegals, literally five million, have come here in the last 22 months. Joe Biden and Mark Kelly have welcomed them. When these people cross, they know not only will they not be deported, but they're given envelopes with cash, plane tickets. Here's a hotel room in Scottsdale. I mean, this is bruising stuff, and it happens to be true. Masters continued in that answer. This was on stage there with Mark Kelly last night in Arizona, cut 22. We treat these people better than we treat our own U.S. military service members. I find that shameful. 300,000 come through every month. It's a humanitarian disaster. The women and children are raped. The men are indentured servants sold into some kind of slavery. And it's not just the people, it's the drugs, the fentanyl that's coming through. It's killing kids. We're losing 2,000 Arizonans every year to fentanyl. This stuff is poison. It's coming right there up through the southern border. And Mark Kelly and Joe Biden have not done a single thing to stop it. It is carnage. And so I think we should secure the border. That means a wall. It means doubling the size of Border Patrol. And it means let's get back to deporting people who try to break into our country, something that Mark Kelly routinely votes against. And I would note with Blake Masters saying what we should do is double the size of the Border Patrol, what Mark Kelly's voted for, along with all the Democrats in Congress, almost every single one of them, they voted to double the IRS. Not the Border Patrol. They doubled the IRS. That's their priority. So then there was this back and forth between Senator Kelly and Blake Masters on the border where Kelly, the Democrat, tries to say, oh, no, I've been all over the border since day one, it's been a big priority, and Masters takes the opportunity to jump in and fire this shot across the bow in Cut 23. I've been focused on the border since day one on this job. I'm down there all the time. I was on the phone this week just, you know, with Mayor Nichols of Yuma, Sheriff Daniels of Cochise County, talking about what more we need for Border Patrol and immigration. That, my friends, we're is working, called evasion. We're, we're, we're working to raise Border Patrol pay by 18, 18%. I've got legislation to do that. I've been focused on the border since day one. Okay. I, you know, we have no great effects because we have a wide open southern border. So if that's the best you it, can do, I respectfully request you resign. Been, and let's get someone in the seat who will actually secure our border. I've been focused on the border since day one. How's that going, Senator Kelly? The border is worse than ever because your party and your president of your party has incentivized mass illegal immigration, causing a national sovereignty, public safety, and security crisis, overwhelming our people. Drugs, opioids, weapons, human trafficking, sexual abuse, death. 
if you're going to claim that you've been focused on the problem since day one and the problem has only gotten worse every day and you're a border state senator apparently having no effect at all over at the White House with your friend in the Oval Office, well, Blake Master suggests maybe it's time, respectfully, sir, to resign. Get someone in there who can actually get something accomplished. If this is the best you can do, having been so focused on a problem that's worse than ever, then maybe you're not really supposed to be there anymore. That was a moment to step in and step up, and Masters did. And then Masters was trying to push further on this question where he was challenging Kelly on an actual vote to increase Border Patrol, and Kelly got down into the weeds and sort of deflected away and cut 24. Did you not vote to reject 18,000 more Border Patrol agents in the Inflation Reduction Act passage? Senator. You know, we... we, There it is right there. There are votes that happen in D.C. that have nothing to do with Border Patrol agents, and it might have the title on it, and nothing happens. What on earth is that answer from Kelly? There was an opportunity to vote for more Border Patrol in an amendment offered to the Inflation Reduction Act. The very legislation, by the way, that doubled the size of the IRS that Mark Kelly voted for, he voted down, along with all of his partisan Democrats, he voted down this amendment for more Border Patrol agents. And Masters just asked him, did you or did you not cast that vote? And he goes, well, there are votes in D.C. that have nothing to do with Border Patrol. Well, this one did. This one did. But the orders from on high from Chuck Schumer and the Democratic leadership was we are voting no on all the Republican amendments. We're going to cut them down. We're not going to let them get adopted because that might jeopardize the passage of our giant new spending deal that we're going to somehow call inflation reduction. And Mark Kelly, as always, did as he was told. Then he wants to show up back home in Arizona and pretend like he's been all over this crisis since day one. Since day one, I've been... I've been focused on this. He's achieved nothing, and when there's a chance to do something, he votes no, because that's what his party tells him to do, because he's a reflexive partisan Democrat, and Masters was not letting him off the hook on that. Now, Masters has also said some things on Social Security and entitlement reform down the line for future seniors, something I support because the current status quo is unsustainable. I don't think we should pull the rug out from anyone who is at or near Retirement age, but I think at some point we can't just keep going on this path. It's nuts. It, it doesn't work. The math doesn't work. I've written and talked about this for years under administrations of both parties. But because Blake Masters had said similar things about different solutions on Social Security, the Democrats have been coming after him about, you know, oh, he's, he's going to kill a bunch of seniors trying to scare seniors that Blake Masters wants to rip away their their Medicare, their Social Security. And Masters, in addressing that, flipped it right back on its head and, again, turned back on offense against Mark Kelly and his voting record, cut 26. Let's be clear, the greatest threat to seniors' retirement today is the massive, crushing inflation that Joe Biden and Mark Kelly caused. And it's their fault. They caused it. Two years ago, inflation was one and a half percent. Now, in the greater Phoenix metro area, we are suffering from literally the worst inflation in the nation at 13 percent. Joe Biden's policies caused this, and those are policies that Mark Kelly in Washington has supported every single time. 
It's another good answer. I bet you the Kelly campaign is hoping that a lot of people didn't see this debate in Arizona. That race could get awfully close. Turnout is going to be critical. And Blake Masters was loaded for bear, and he was prepared last night. Good for him. That could be a winnable race out there. And Masters, I think, helped himself last evening. All right, we've got so much to get to today. Marco Rubio later this hour. H.R. McMaster in our final hour. Don't go anywhere. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Coming up in the next segment, Senator Marco Rubio will be here. I want to talk to him about energy and the report that the Biden administration is now going to move forward and relieve sanctions on Venezuela to let them pump more oil when they won't do that here at home. They're shackling American energy while going around begging despotic regimes to go do that, I guess, dirty work for us, because I guess, again, the emissions don't count. If there's somewhere else in the world. He gave a speech earlier where he talked about bragging about gas prices briefly. He said, I brought them down more than a buck sixty, but now they're going back up because of Putin and the Saudis. He said that today. I brought them down. Remember, they told us the president has no control. He has no control. It's unfair to say this. Then it comes down, they brag every single day. Ron Klain is tweeting about like thank you, President Biden. Then he's boasting, I brought it down a buck sixty, but now other people are bringing it back up. It's just so clumsy. Like, we're all living through this together. We remember the claim that the president can't control it from a few months ago. Then you were trying to take credit. Now it's back to someone else's fault. It's just like a pitiful effort at spin. I guess it's the best they've got. Now, at this Volvo plant in Maryland today, the President of the United States also had this interesting thing to say in Cut 33. Let me start off with two words. Made in America. Made in America. Let me start off with two words. Made in America. Hashtag math. We've got a break. I'll send you to break. With three words. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, broadcasting from the Hoover Institution at Stanford this week. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast free every day when the show is over and i am pleased to welcome back to the program u.s senator marco rubio republican of florida he's up for re-election november 8th down in the sunshine state senator great to have you back here thanks for having me back on and 
encouraging everyone to go on my website and help us out at MarcoRubio.com, especially if you live in Florida. We need you to vote. For sure. And I want to get into your race. I want to start, though, on the issue of Hurricane Ian and what happened to your state. Obviously, just a devastating weather event. I know the governor's been all over this. I've seen you and Senator Scott all across media talking about what you're seeing on the ground, what Floridians need in the aftermath. What can you tell us about what's happening now, the sort of like the latest developments down there? Well, I think power is now restored to all but about just a little under 200,000 customers in the whole state. So it's very impressive work done there. And that really matters. Look, I think the thing you learn as a veteran of these storms, having lived through them personally and just have experienced so many of them as as an elected official here, is once you get power and phones going, you know, the phones work, the power's back on, life gets a little easier because now it's easier to communicate. It's obviously easier to find food. You don't have to be doing some of these things. So that's really essential. Now, obviously for people that have lost everything, I mean, we have homes and entire areas, North, uh, North Fort Myers, Sanibel, just wiped out. I mean, honestly, that, that is a total rebuild. I mean, it's total destruction. And, um, and obviously, you know, thousands and thousands of people affected, not to mention people who have lost their lives. That effort is ongoing. Uh, not just probably some more recovery that's left in terms of, unfortunately, those who lost their lives, but but also, you know, the medical examiner having to go through that now and sort of identify which ones were storm-related and, and which ones were not. But nonetheless, I mean, loss of life, it's very real. So this is a long-term recovery for many parts of this area. And then there's things people don't even think about a lot of times, and that is the impact it's had on agriculture. Florida, you know, agriculture in counties like Polk County and and areas of the large citrus and, and other growth, and, and, and in addition to some of the cattle and, and, and livestock areas uh, in some of the inland counties that saw flooding just in the low-lying areas near the, the, the Peace River and the like. I mean, that's also incalculable at this point. It's been pretty devastating. I've noticed, Senator, that your opponent is trying to get into the politics of the hurricane and post-hurricane relief. You've been knocked because in the past you voted against relief packages that you said were wasteful. I couldn't help but notice a piece today in the Miami Herald, though. Demings, so Val Demings, of course, your opponent, knocks Rubio for missing hurricane relief vote, but she opposed some similar bills herself. I wonder if she's kind of opened herself up, actually, on this front. Yeah, so I've never opposed hurricane relief. I've opposed things that have nothing to do with hurricane relief. So what we do here is pretty simple. First, you have an emergency response. There's an emergency response to the moment, and these are things you need immediately. We need to put blue tarps on roofs. We need to you know, help get people medicine, temporary shelter, and so forth. I'm in favor of all of that. Unfortunately, what's happened in the past is they come up with these bills, and then they say, okay, let's add some other stuff to it that has nothing to do with that storm. Maybe a storm somewhere else, maybe not even a storm at all, but let's use it to rebuild buildings. Um, let's put a roof back on the Smithsonian that got damaged in the storm. Well, that's not emergency relief. That, that, that is the kind of thing that you do as a second wave of assistance when you go through a normal process of assessing, okay, what's a worthy project for government to be involved in and which one is not. And so that was the problem I had with Sandy originally. It's not that the state of New Jersey was asking for it that way, but there were legislators that said, okay, let's jump on this train and get some stuff for, that is unrelated. And I'm not voting for that stuff. So we, we're going to put out pretty clearly what we think Florida needs on an emergency basis first. And then there is the rebuilding part. And all of that should go through a normal process where we check it out and make sure that it's real and not wasteful because it's not our money. It's taxpayer money. And, uh, and you know, again, these, the hypocrisy here runs deep, right? I mean, she voted for against bills that had a hurricane relief in the past, including relief for Puerto Rico and Florida. Uh, because she didn't like other things in the bill as well. But that hypocrisy has never stopped leftists like her 
uh, for making these attacks. And frankly, you know, they get a lot of uh, protection by the mainstream media who sort of ignores those things and never asks them those questions. Yeah, I mean, it's always like microphone in your face as a Republican. What about this? What about that? It's like the you know the talking points come down from the DSCC and the reporters come rushing out to ask the question. Is it doesn't seem to really work the other way all that often. Speaking of your opponent, Val Demings, I've watched your race from a distance here. I've thought all along that you're going to prevail, you're going to win. I know that they're throwing a ton of money at you. She's raised a lot of money from progressives all over the country who can't stand you. They want to throw you out of the Senate. I think they'll fail, but they're really trying with mountains of cash. When you boil it down, though, to her record in the House of Representatives, I really made a good faith effort to try to find important, meaningful examples of her voting, Val Demings voting, in a way that was not just lockstep Pelosi-Biden on anything of importance. And I really struggled to find anything. It just seems like she is a loyal, reflexive Pelosi-Biden Democrat that they put up against you in Florida. And just based on the way Florida votes and the way Florida especially is feeling politically these days, I'm not really sure that's a great recipe for success for her. Yeah, so... There's a reason why she doesn't want people to know she's a member of Congress, right? I mean, she doesn't ever talk about her congressional record or the work she's done. She doesn't want anybody to know she's a member of the House, not like last week, like for the last six years, because two reasons. Number one, she's never gotten anything done, nothing meaningful. Most people, until she spent a bunch of money on commercials, no one even heard of her because she's never done anything. She's never been involved in anything important for her community or for the state, not to mention for the country. But number two, because of what you just said, she votes 100 percent of the time with Pelosi. I mean, Pelosi says, this is what I want. This is what she does. That's why Schumer wants her in the Senate. I mean, Schumer doesn't just want a Democrat. He wants a Democrat that is going to do what he says. Like on any given issue, he doesn't care what your opinion is. You can campaign on whatever you want. And that's not just in Florida. It's everywhere. But when you get up there, they all fall in line. They all vote down the party line, and that's what they want. And if they can get 51 votes in the Senate, then they can pass anything they want. And that includes, like, change the rules so they can, at that point, pass with simple majorities anything, like packing the Supreme Court, taking over our election systems. That's why they want her. That's what her record is, 100 percent with Pelosi whatever Pelosi wants, and that's what she's going to be for Schumer. And, and that's a real stark choice here you know, in, in, in this race. I have a record of doing real things, like accomplishments that have been ranked as high as anybody in the Senate. And you know, at the end of the day, I always vote with what I think is the right thing. And, and, and there's been times when I don't vote the way McConnell votes on an issue or, or what have you, because I don't think it's the right thing in that particular case. And uh, she can't say that. Let's talk about a story that came out two days ago in the Wall Street Journal. As soon as I saw it, We had the sense that we were perhaps going to get you on the show later in the week, and I thought to myself, I cannot wait to ask Marco Rubio about this story, not because I like the story. I can't stand what the story is reporting, but it's just astounding to me. I did a whole opening monologue on it on the show here yesterday, and there was this Wall Street Journal report that the Biden administration is apparently getting ready to green light sanctions relief on Venezuela and the communist regime, illegitimate, I should add, regime that they don't even recognize officially in Venezuela because they want to ease up the ability of that regime to make some money off of oil and to pump oil because they have a political problem they've made for themselves by being aggressively hostile to U.S. energy. They're now asking the Saudis. They want deals with Iran. Now they're coming hat in hand down to Caracas and and begging Maduro and his thugs to get the oil pumping again, while at home they're doing exactly the opposite. It It just strikes me as this shockingly incoherent policy where they're propping up a communist regime in order to try to sort of paper over an issue that they have made worse 
for themselves and a political problem here at home on energy. It, it just seems crazy to me, Senator. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, it has little to do with energy because Venezuela can't produce any oil uh, that would make a difference. Uh, almost all the oil they produce now, and it's very little because they've never, you know, they stole all the money. So they haven't invested in any of the production ability. And all of it is now they're using it to pay off the loans that they have to China. They have to give uh, 10 percent of it to Cuba to keep them afloat. So they really can't produce any oil that would make any meaningful change in our market. This is about the desire of those in this administration and many in the Democratic Party to sort of make things right and get normalized with Venezuela. And by the way, what you can add to Iran and Cuba and any of these other countries to that. They, if you're bad to America, if you're an enemy of America, it seems like they want to improve our relations with you. If you're a friend of America, on the other hand, then they're really critical and crack down on you and really come at you and you know, critical statements and so forth. So it sends a very clear message. But it's not just this. Listen, last weekend, Biden basically pardoned two convicted narco-traffickers, two convicted narco-traffickers who happened to be the nephew of the Venezuelan dictator Maduro, in exchange for seven American hostages, which is what they were. These were American citizens that were lured under the promise, oh, come here for some meetings, and then the Venezuelans kidnapped them. They basically took them as hostages, and they held them for almost two years, and they got the nephews of the president's wife, or, or not the president, the dictator's wife, who are convicted narco-traffickers. We have the pardon, a signed pardon by Biden. These guys were convicted in federal court for trafficking drugs. So in addition to letting go of these two guys who are now laughing at us, you've just put basically a bounty on the head of any American in any of these countries. You now basically said, look, go ahead, kidnap and capture Americans and hold them. Because when the time is right, America will trade them for something you want, that they're valuable chips to have. And that's why you see Americans being kidnapped in Russia, why you see Americans being kidnapped in, in, in all these different countries, because you know, we're incentivizing that behavior. And again, Val Deming stands up and claps. This is fantastic. This is great, because at the end, that's what these leftists want. I mean, they want better relations with Venezuela. I think it's great news. And we keep rewarding these people. And that's why they, our enemies keep being emboldened to do whatever they want, to, especially under Biden. On the subject of our enemies, I want to talk about Iran. Later in today's show, H.R. McMaster will be our guest, a former national security advisor under President Trump. I'll definitely be asking him about Iran as well. But I have to say the juxtaposition, Senator, of these incredibly heroic and brave protests in the streets led by women in Iran, putting their freedom and their lives on the line, and the, the brutal, sometimes deadly crackdown from the regime. And then on the other side of it, you have the... Biden administration putting out statements supporting the women, but actively continuing conversations via the Russians with the regime to try to pour more money back into their coffers in, in you know, pursuit of this incredibly uh, naive at best nuclear deal that they're going to try to put in place. It just feels, you know, sometimes our friends on the left use this term about being on the right side of history. And I, it doesn't really feel like Team Biden and the White House and the brain trust on foreign policy there is on the right side of history here in this moment in Iran. Yeah, they're not. And so what's happening is twofold. First of all, the Iranian people is an ancient Persian culture. They are not radical jihadist you know, types, and that's who they're run by. They're run by clerics, like radical religious fanatic clerics who want a, a, a nuclear weapon so they can destroy Israel because they view that as sort of the crowning achievement of their time on earth. Okay. That's who we're dealing with here. Okay. So that's number one. This is exactly what Obama did. In 2009, there were protests in the street after some fake election they did in Iran. People took to the streets and Obama's like, I'm not getting involved. I don't want to get mixed up in this. You know, I don't want to. And it's the same thing he's doing now. They're so obsessed with cutting a deal. And let me tell you something else that's offensive. I don't know how we're sitting at the table 
with an Iranian regime who is actively trying to assassinate former American political leaders. That's right. right. John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, they could get their hands on Trump. They've already threatened to assassinate him. So we know we've made arrests and we made uh, not just arrests, they made uh, indictments of Iranian agents operating within the United States trying to assassinate former government officials in the previous administration. So here's a guy trying to kill people, and here we are sitting at the table with them even as they're doing that. I mean, it's insanity. But that is how obsessed they are with the deal with these people that in the end is going to wind up with the same thing. Not, the difference is they don't just have a nuclear weapon. They're also going to have billions and billions of dollars of economic activity that they're going to spend not on their people, not on bridges and roads. They're going to spend it on building up their military to further threaten the region and forcing other countries in the region to now pursue their own nuclear weapons. It is uh, amateurish, dangerous, naive, uh, you know, left of center foreign policy that really puts America and our allies in a very dangerous predicament. On your race upcoming, November 8th, it's a big day, seeking another term in the U.S. Senate. I talked a little bit about the contours of the race. It seems to me like you've been ahead in virtually all of the polls recently. Sometimes it's kind of close, like, you know, you're up three. I saw another poll had you maybe up eight or nine. How are you feeling about your race right now as we're entering really the, the final month here before voters render their verdict? I'm feeling focused. You know, I'm not – look, these polls today are a joke. Um, to be honest with you, the ones I'm winning and the ones I'm not doing, doing great in, they're a joke. I mean, right now, anybody here can start up a company and say, I'm a pollster, <laughs> or I've done polls in the past. They run some poll. Sometimes they're Internet polls or email polls that they're doing. They're not even statistically valid in that way. And, and, they're, and, then, they're, and then the news eats it all up. They report on it like it's, like it's the score of the game. It's not the score of the game. Here's the poll. The poll is right now in Florida. People are already getting in the mail their ballots. Soon in Florida, like within a few days, we're going to have the beginning of the early voting period, the last you know, 10 days before the election. That's the poll that matters, and obviously Election Day, where the bulk of our vote is going to come. And all I'm telling people is forget all that stuff. Forget the ones that say I'm winning. Forget the ones that say it's close, and just go vote. That's what we need you to do. If people of Florida go vote, we're going to win. That's as simple as that. The people listening in Florida that listen to the show go vote. We are going to win. DeSantis is going to win. We're going to win the statewide offices. There's no way that this state is going to vote for the same political party that controls a country that's headed in the wrong direction. They control everything in Washington. Everything is worse than it was two years ago, and the same people are in charge of everything. We've got to get these people out of power. So I'm confident of that, and that's what I'm focused on. Now, you've said repeatedly, and it's true, she's raised a lot of money. She's got liberals from California and New York always sending their money down here to spend in Florida. Uh, great stimulus for our television media stations, <laughs> I suppose. But at the end, besides the elections, people are going to vote. Now, I need to match that. These people charge us, too. And so if people are listening and they want to help us, please go on MarcoRubio.com, and you can contribute to that. It would go to good use. We're just trying to make sure people know what the choice is in this election between 100 percent Pelosi puppet and someone who's going to continue to get things done for Florida, but also has some level of common sense here and isn't going to try to. These people will destroy the country. I said that in my last commercial. If we don't stop these people, they will destroy this country. And, and that's what we're fighting against. Last but not least, very quickly, Senator, one of your colleagues in the Senate, Ben Sass of Nebraska, surprising some people this week, saying that he's going to be leaving the Senate. And the only reason I'm asking you about it is because, well, you know, sounds like he might be heading down your way to Florida, the University yeah. of Florida, perhaps as their next president. Just mind. your reaction. Well, I think Ben will do a good job. You know, he was a university president before. Right. And, uh, and at the end of the day, look, here's my I'm a I'm an alumni of the University of Florida. I'm a fan of the sports there. I continue to follow and stay close to the school. I want the school to do well. And what I want Florida and the University of Florida, which is now a top five university in the country, 
and, and, and all of our universities are doing well, is I just want them to be a place where people can send kids. You know, your money's well spent. They're very affordable, you know, if you're an in-state resident. And you're getting an education that will lead to a degree that will take you to grad school and a job or a job. That's what I want. I don't want them to become one of these weird places where weird things are happening and, and the mission is lost. And so, you know, I don't know, obviously, as a university president, he's got a lot of different functions. But to me, the most important thing is I know that someone's going to be there that's going to keep the school a normal university that's there to teach and empower people, future generation of leaders, business leaders, community leaders, and others uh, that are going to go out and be the backbone of our economy. So I think it was a good choice. Obviously, it has to be ratified. I expect it will be. And I think he'll do a real good job. No, I couldn't avoid asking you a quick question about the Gators there to end the interview. Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, our guest up for re-election in November. Senator, appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thank you. And we'll be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As we return here to the Guy Benson Show, the Dow is getting pummeled. We'll give you the final number at the top of the next hour, but this might be why. Reading from the Wall Street Journal today, the strong U.S. labor market lost momentum in September as high inflation and rising interest rates weighed on the economy. Job growth slowed. It also said in this piece that the number of people in the labor force fell in September after increasing the prior month and, listen to this, job openings in August posted their largest decline since the early months of COVID-19, which is what Tyler Goodspeed was telling us about, warning us about on this show just yesterday. Hourly earnings easing, that's not good in inflation. So Dow's falling for a reason on today's jobs report. More coming up in our next hour. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It is a brand new hour underway here on the Guy Benson Show, Friday edition. Happy Friday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast, always free, every day on demand, no charge at all. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast that's available after the show is over. At Guy Benson Show, our Twitter and Instagram handle. You can send us a follow on one or both platforms. Also, please do tune in this Weekend, I'll be on Media Buzz with Howie Kurtz on Sunday morning, Fox News Channel. You can check the listings there. It's on the 11 a.m. hour. I think it repeats later on in the day as well. One-stop shop for everything related here to the show, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. As we mentioned last hour, the Dow was really shedding a lot of ground, and at the close it was ugly, down 630 points to 29,296, and I think some of the soft indications in the new jobs report probably contributed to that sell-off, and we continue to watch the economy very urgently on this show. I think it is a driving force in the election cycle that we're living through and that we cover every single day here on the program. With us now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, representing the 23rd Congressional District down in the Lone Star State. And, Congressman, welcome back. Guys, so good to be on. Thanks for having me back on. You bet. I want to talk about immigration and the border with you primarily. Before I get to that, though, 
Some breaking news out of your district earlier today in Uvalde, Texas. You represent that area. I know you've spent a lot of time in that community following that horrible atrocity at the elementary school. The district, the school district in Uvalde, announced earlier today that it was suspending its entire district police force in the wake of this tragedy. What's your reaction to this development? Yeah, it's been difficult for the community of Uvalde to uh, to pick up the pieces and move on. Um, you know, my take is uh, school safety is is of top priority for me. I have six kids of my own. As you can imagine, as a father, we want to make sure our kids are safe as well. And and the other part of it too is, you know, I stand by the school district. I represent this district is massive, Texas twenty three that I represent. I have one hundred and nineteen cities and towns in the district. Each school district is different, has different priorities, has, you know, different uh, challenges to deal with. I, I stand with the, the Uvalde School District. Uh, the superintendent there has worked extremely hard. Uh, not an easy topic to work through, but um, I, I stand by them, you know, every step of the way as they try to figure out what's next uh, to keep their school safe. You talked about the size of your district. Of course, it is a border district as well. You and I talk about this issue all the time. And I've noticed in some of your social media posts in the last couple of days that a certain border czar is coming to your state, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, not quite in town in terms of at the border, but kind of close, coming to Texas, not interested apparently in coming down to the border, which she never seems to be. You have extended, I think it's fair to say, several invitations to her. Have you heard anything back from the vice president's office? No, we've heard crickets from the vice president's office, sadly. You know, uh, Guy, I've hosted 74 members of Congress at the border, uh, both Democrats and Republicans. And, I, you know, once I'll host anyone because once you see the border crisis, you can't unsee it. And it's sad that the, the vice president will be in Texas tomorrow in Austin raising money and not taking, you know, an, hour, an extra hour plane ride to uh, to the border. You know, I, look, I'll, 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 she can meet with whoever she wants. I'll load the room up with nothing but Democrats. Everyone will tell you the same thing. Uh, I will tell you, this crisis has gone from bad to worse. There's no end in sight. You know, I know we're going to talk about a little bit about today, but uh, I just met with uh, one of the sheriffs from Zavala County. It's about 40 miles from the border, and it's story after story that just your jaw drops when you hear these guys. And the numbers are just astonishing. We keep updating them here on the show. Two million people encountered and then many of them processed and released. But two million people encountered at the southern border in a year, one year. And since Biden took office, we are basically at, I'd say by today, almost certainly past a million known gotaways. These are extraordinary numbers. And then you have the Democratic Party, especially the folks at the White House and DHS, who just say over and over again, from the president to the vice president to the DHS secretary to the White House press secretary, the border is secure. The numbers tell a wildly different story. And I just feel like we're kind of at this stalemate. People saying one thing and denying reality and others who care about that reality. And it's it's just very frustrating that it takes, for example, Governor Abbott or Governor DeSantis doing a stunt, a successful stunt, to get some of these people to even acknowledge that something's happening down there. Oh, you're exactly right. Guy, it is the wild, wild west along the border and, and people have had enough. I'll give you an example. You know, there was um, there was a high-speed chase, and these happen all the time. There's a high-speed chase that was going through one of the towns. It it, it, it wrecked. It had uh, some fatalities, and there were some folks that needed to be airlifted to San Antonio. Well, at the same time, 
there was a baseball game that was going on. And one of these little, one of the, the children got hit in the head with a baseball, okay? And they were supposed to be flown to San Antonio for emergency care. Well, guess where that helicopter was being sent? It wasn't to fly that little kid, that little boy to San Antonio. It was used to fly these migrants. So the family had to get in their car, drive as fast as they can, you know, nearly two hours away. I mean, these are the real world things that are impacting when I, when, that, are, that, we're in, that we're feeling. When I was in, uh, I was in Crystal City yesterday, 40 miles from Uvalde, 40 miles from the border, and I'm sitting with the the, the sheriff there, and he goes, Tony, the the issue we're having is is people are now being released, and and they're they're coming back. We're seeing the same cars over and over again. This is another one that I thought was interesting. Is let's say the cartel is offering a thousand dollars a head to smuggle uh, these migrants over, very lucrative. Well, what is happening is they, they offer the contract to these gangs. These gangs are subcontracting out, and so they keep, let's say, they, they subcontracted for $500, and so some random person gets it for $500. The gangs are never involved because if something goes down, you're just arresting this, you know, the poor sap that answered the TikTok ad. What I'm getting at is things are getting more and more complex, and it's getting more and more of lawlessness along the border solely due to failed administration, uh, failed policies by the administration and ultimately House Democrats. We've got some sound bites that we're going to play later on in this hour of Mayor Adams in New York City declaring earlier today a state of emergency in his city. He's saying it's unsustainable. We didn't ask for this. This this problem came out of nowhere with these illegal immigrants uh, that they all just showed up here. And, you know, this this isn't good. So we need to declare a state of emergency. They've had about 17,000 migrants arrive over the last six months, which is child's play compared to what border communities are seeing every day. Is there some irony watching the mayor of New York City, a sanctuary city, belly aching like this and treating a tiny fraction of the crisis as an emergency in his town? Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, my eyes popped out of my head when I read he's asking for a billion dollars. Yep. I mean, literally, you know, the the state of the not only state of Texas, but everywhere along the border, we've been abandoned. The the Biden administration has abandoned us. And you get you've got these liberal cities that are jumping up and down asking for billions of dollars. It's It's a slap in the face at the least. Uh, but but you know what? I also don't blame that mayor because everything that this border crisis touches, every city, every town, it consumes. And whether you're a mayor or a governor, Democrat, Republican, you're going to be scrambling for help because you're going to be underwater very fast. Uh, I will also say, too, is Republicans have a plan. You know, we've rolled out this commitment to America. Part of that commitment to America is focused on ending catch and release. I think that's ultimately part of it, too, is when when House Republicans win, we can't just be pointing the finger at the administration. We have to roll up our sleeves and go, now it's time for us to secure the border. That starts with ending catch and release. Congressman Gonzalez, you're up for re-election in November. Every member of the House is every two years. Uh, no exception here for you. How are you feeling about your race for re-election? And What's the sense on the ground? We keep reading stories and analyses and data points and polling about a real shift and maybe a realignment in Texas involving Hispanic voters in particular. What are you seeing down there? Yeah, I feel great, Guy. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm Mexican-American. I'm a 20-year veteran. I represent a district that is uh, over 70 percent uh, Hispanic, and we have fought tooth and nail 
uh, for our district, you know, bringing things back. I've seen on the Appropriations Committee, but but also just highlighting some of the nonsense that is happening. And it's not only in Texas 23, it's all along the border. And what you're going to see, you've already seen it with Myra Flores in Texas 23, but you're going to see it with Monica Dela Cruz. And you're also going to see it in other states like Juan Siscomani, who's running in Arizona 6 in the Tucson area. I think you're going to see a, a, the, the largest amount of Hispanic Republicans in Congress in our nation's history. I think it's exciting, but we also have to be pragmatic in, in, in how we deliver results because we're prom- we, Republicans, have a plan and we're promising all these things, but we got to be able to govern as well. So I'm excited about the election, but I'm even more excited about when we have the gavels, we get back to regular order, we start rolling up our sleeves and delivering tangible results for the American public. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas 23, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Congressman, appreciate it. Always enjoy chatting. Thank you, Guy. Take care. Likewise. We will step aside. We'll come back from Texas to Illinois. Some shocking numbers out of that state. Straight ahead. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We have spent a lot of time here on this program talking about schools and education, especially in the context of COVID, school closures, and those types of issues. But a lot of the problems predate COVID. There's an editorial from the Wall Street Journal published earlier this week that is stunning and depressing. The headline is, Illinois' shocking report card. The land of Lincoln is failing its children and covering it up. I would note that Illinois, of course, is a one-party state. Its largest city is dominated by Democrats. Springfield also dominated by Democrats. Governor Prisker, a Democrat, seems to spend a lot of his time trying to out-culture war Gavin Newsom, which he'll never be able to do. That's Newsom's top obsession. In fact, we'll talk about that here coming up in just a few minutes. I saw in Chicago the mayor did a TikTok video of her putting on sunglasses and singing a song about the city while crime is rampant in the city, and a lot of responses on social media were like, hey, maybe you can just spend your time on a few other things than music videos. Mayor Lightfoot. Broadening it out to Illinois statewide in that blue state, the editors of the Wall Street Journal survey some recently available data on proficiency among students in Illinois. They write statewide... In 2019, think about that, 2019, 36% of all third grade students could read at grade level. 36%. That's an F. And that's the good news, they write. That number drops to 27% for Hispanic students and 22% for black students statewide. In certain public school systems, the numbers plummet into single digits. In Decatur, Illinois, 2% of black third graders are reading at grade level. Only 1% are doing math at grade level. We aren't often speechless, write the editors of the Wall Street Journal, but the extent to which that performance is betraying a generation of school children is hard to put into words. Third grade children are eight years old, full of potential, with minds like sponges to absorb what they're taught. 
Third grade is the year that children need to achieve a level of reading fluency that will prepare them to tackle more complex tasks in upper elementary grades that require comprehension. A child who can't read in third grade can't do word problems in fourth or science experiments in fifth. Promoting Decatur children to the fourth grade when 99% of them are below grade level in math condemns them to future failure. By 11th grade, so this is junior year of high school, 5% of Decatur's students are reading at grade level. 4% are on par in math. 5 and 4% by high school, late high school. The editors ask, why shouldn't every single adult presiding over these schools be fired? They go on to write, if you want to discuss systemic racism, start here. Yet Illinois politicians protect this indefensible system. Now, these numbers, needless to say, are atrocious. Even the statewide levels, if you're not going to zoom down into some of the worst school systems and worst communities in Illinois, statewide, 36% of third grade students across the board can read at the third grade level. Just over one out of three. Two-thirds are failing and falling behind. Obviously a failing grade. And for the equity obsessives, Hispanic and black students fare even worse. And what is really sobering is that this data comes from before the pandemic, 2019. Illinois was one of the states, given its very deep blue complexion and the Democrats and unions that control it, is one of the states that kept kids out of school, locked out of classrooms for the longest. It was sort of in that category of California and Washington State, some of the worst of the worst. So if this is how kids were doing, this is their report card collectively before schools shut down for a year and a half, and the horrific failure, the deep harm of so-called remote learning was foisted upon these kids for more than one entire school year, you can only imagine how much worse things have gotten since 2019 when it was already unacceptably, not just bad, horrific. And it's not a leap at all to believe that it's gone downhill from there. And yet a lot of the people who will read this editorial, who are teachers union bosses, who are Democratic politicians, they'll just sort of shrug and say, no, this is probably racism. It's someone else's fault. And what we need to do is spend even more money on our public schools. And what we should never do is take any money that might go to public schools and send it to families so they can send their kids to a school of their choice, where I guarantee you the numbers are not anywhere near this bad. If you're rich, middle class, upper middle class, and above, if you're living in a town like Decatur or one of these other failing schools, the Rockford numbers are bad, Elgin I saw, that just awful, you can take money that you've earned and help your kids escape a failing system. But if you're lower down on the income scale, too bad you are stuck in this monopoly, a monopoly that is a grinding, disgraceful failure. How is that fair? We were just talking to some students here at Stanford earlier today about school choice. This is the type of editorial that rekindles my passion on the issue. It is grotesquely unfair. It's not the third graders' fault. It is the adults' fault. 
that they are stuck in a system that's failing, and in many cases, they have no escape hatch. And the one escape hatch, school choice, that might actually help them is fought tooth and nail every step of the way for political reasons by selfish adults. It's totally unacceptable. Read this editorial, Illinois' shocking report card in the Wall Street Journal this week. So that's one blue state. Let's turn to another, California. Oh, an insider's view as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, and we are back. Thanks for listening. With me now here in studio at the Hoover Institution is Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism and a Hoover Institution Research Fellow since 1999. His expertise is in national politics and then especially California politics. And, Bill, it's great to see you again. Good to see you, Guy. And we have spoken multiple times on this show about the state of California, and I feel like I want to begin this iteration of that conversation with what I view as a political fact. Maybe you disagree here. From the other coast, I look at your governor out here, and I see a man who is absolutely intent on becoming president of the United States. It seems like he gets up every day trying to triangulate how he can ingratiate himself further with the base nationally and grow his profile in order to supplant Joe Biden either this coming time or certainly, if not, the next time. Does that sound about right to you? That sounds very right, Guy. So two things you should know about the uh, the governor. Uh, first of all, he's up for re-election, Gavin Newsom is. Uh, he's going to get re-elected, uh, and he's so certain of this that, number one, Guy, if you go to the California official voter guide where they have the candidate statements, his space is blank. He didn't bother to hand one in. He did not want to go by uh, any kind of spending limits in the election, so he just didn't bother to send it in. So you want to vote for the governor, you don't know what Gavin Newsom stands for because he's blank on the thing. But the second thing is uh, there will be a candidate's debate guy. It's going to be on Sunday the 23rd at 1 p.m. What else is going on in California at 1 p.m. on a Sunday? Football. Mm-hmm. 49ers are playing. The Chargers are playing in Los Angeles. The Raiders, who still have a California following, they're all playing at the same time. This is just tailor-made to just kind of suppress any interest in the, ra- in the race whatsoever. Not on live television. It's on public uh, radio across the state. You can watch it if you want to go uh, see a tape delay on uh, public television, which is what people do when they're going to look for reruns of Rick Steves in Europe and things like that. <laughs> so uh, he's just not really that interested in California, it seems, right now. He spends his energy and his time picking fights with Ron DeSantis and with Governor Abbott in Texas and any red state governor willing to take the bait. So, yeah, he does, for all intent purposes, look like somebody wants to run in 2024. He was just in Texas. Yes. Having banned state travel to Texas Mm -hmm. in one of his multiple instances of culture warriorism. He is maybe the foremost culture warrior on the left today by design. So you can't go to Texas as a California state employee on state business, I guess, unless you're him and he wants to. It's kind of familiar, this guy doing whatever he wants to. It is. Uh, but keep in mind, he also got dinged on this guy last summer when uh, he and the wife and kids went to Montana. His wife's father has a, a ranch in Montana where he and uh, Gavin, Gavin Newsom and uh, Jennifer Newsom got married. Uh, 
Montana's also part of the Red State Band for California, so we should not have gone there. This also happens, guys. It's a lot of the states, right? Yeah. It's, yeah a it's, lot of states are banned. A lot of red states are banned. But anytime guys say UCLA or Cal Berkeley goes to play sports in a red state, technically the coaches are university or state employees. The, the head football coach at UCLA, Chip Kelly, is, I believe, the highest state, uh, paid state government worker. Uh, so the state just tap dances around this. What Newsom will tell you as well, I was at the Texas Tribune Book Festival, but it wasn't official California state business. It was just me making a parents. Well, not quite true, Governor, because you have security traveling through you and all that, but it's just part of the silliness of his administration that you just want to do these symbolic travel. Well, it's signaling, things. right? It's just signaling, it's, we it's hate all, these people. It's all, virtual, it's all virtual signaling, guy, and that's what's interesting about his approach to 2024. He is not trying to really move the Democratic Party on a different policy path. He's not doing what Bill Clinton did in 1992, which is a very real politique. i got to figure out how to get this party to 270 electoral votes. He's just trying to push every virtue button he can. This is why he's doing billboards in, in, uh, in Tennessee and Texas in Florida about abortion and so forth. He just wants to pick. It's sort of like anti-virtue signaling, actually, in my book. But I see what he's trying to do. And it seems like what's happening here in this state is secondary or tertiary right now to his ambitions. What is happening in this state? Give us an overview of how California is doing these days, because he feels like, you know, it's a nightmare in Florida. It's a dystopia in Texas. But California is where really the educated, smart, enlightened people are, starting with him. Uh, the the uh, short answer for that guy is this is a wonderful state to live in if you can afford it. It's like living in Manhattan in that regard. If you're doing well in California and live, say, here near Stanford or down in uh, Southern California in the Palisades or Brentwood, life couldn't be grander. If you're poor, if you're a have-not in California, things are really miserable for you. But if you're in the middle guy in what I call a barbell economy for California because it's weighted on both ends in terms of rich and poor, your existence is really struggling. Why? Because, first of all, good luck finding an affordable house. Secondly, finding a good quality public uh, education for your kid is a challenge these days. Uh, then on top of that, the lovely little gift that is the price of gasoline, the latest uh, uh, straw man the governor is going after, by the way, now evil oil companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just affording to live the California dream. It just doesn't exist anymore. And that's not anecdotal or rhetorical. There's proof. And the proof, guy, is that people are leaving California in large numbers. We have lost population the past several years for the first time in state history. How does he we address that? Seat. How does he address that? Yeah, how, does he, how does he explain that? Because it seems like an inconvenient little data point for him. He just will tell you it's overblown, it's exaggerated. Uh, the stories about wealth leaving, companies leaving, it's just, it's not its not quite, it seems to be. He does have a point here. There's still incredible creativity in California. If you're starting a tech company, this is probably where you want to be, just in terms of this being the cradle of the industry. Entertainment, certainly, you want to be in Los Angeles. But the fact is, people are voting with their feet, and it's average people who moved to the likes of Texas and Florida for two reasons, I think, Guy. First of all, it's a search for housing just to find an affordable four-bedroom, three-bath house in which to raise your kid. But then secondly, I think it's probably a cultural thing as well. You just look at California and, you know, you just you wonder if culturally we're just too far adrift to the left. You just want it to be pulled back, and there's no sign that this governor is willing to do it. On education, I saw that the state has mysteriously decided that they're not going to release test scores until after the election. I think they did a 180. I think they're going to do it now before. Are they? Yeah, but I, but you're right. They at first balked at doing it before the election. They, they were going yeah. to try to bury the, the numbers, and I guess we can probably extrapolate what that means. If they didn't want the numbers to come out before the election, yeah. I wonder what actually pressured them into changing, because I feel like it's a one-party state. They can just basically raise a middle finger whenever they feel like it. I guess 
parents? I think parents raise their voice. Uh, you know, there's an interesting fissure going on in California, Guy, that I think we'll be talking about for the next decade or so, and that's Latino voters in this state. Uh, Governor Newsom faced a recall election last uh, November, October, November, I forget which, last fall, and he um, was returned to office with about the same percentage he got when he ran in 2018, at 61, 62 percent. But if you go, go inside the numbers, Guy, what you see is his numbers among Hispanic voters were down about five points in the recall versus his first election around, and you see the similar phenomenon in other parts of the country, Rio Grande Valley and Texas in particular. I think there's a simple reason here. The pandemic was especially cruel to Latinos here in California for a couple reasons. Number one, Latinos don't have what Peggy Noonan calls the uh, the Zoom economy, uh, the laptop economy, she calls it. They don't do their jobs on laptops. They do physical work. They have to be in places. They can't. They can't stay at home and work. But then secondly, Guy, it's public education. Uh, if you're an aspirational Latino parent in California, you see education as your child's ticket to a better life, to do things that you didn't. Also, education is a subsidized form of daycare for you. So California being the last state to open up after the pandemic for its schools, you're a Latino voter in California. You're probably bitter that the powers that be kept you locked down longer than you should have been and just unnecessarily complicated your life. I'm not saying Longer this, than almost anywhere in the country. Yeah, I'm not saying this is going to lead to an immediate Republican renaissance in California, but if you wanted to talk about what a comeback begins for Republicans in California, that's the beginning. You see cracks in the fissures of the Democratic hold. Let's talk about crime. Yeah. There was one horrific crime in this state just this week, a family kidnapped and then murdered. The Sikh family, yeah. Just awful. You've seen spiking crime in a lot of these cities across the state. The governor's explanation is Trump did it. <laughs> he, he's going on television, MSNBC. He gave an interview where he said, if you really look at the crime numbers, it's Trump cities, mm-hmm. Trump states. This is a Republican problem. Now, Larry Krasner is making the same ridiculous argument in Philadelphia ignoring his own massive failures in the data in Philadelphia. That's what Newsom's trying to do with California. Oh, don't look over here. Look over there. Trump, MAGA, bad, Republicans. And they're just trying to pretend that blue cities are somehow the fault of a former Republican president or a sitting Republican governor. It doesn't matter what the policies are of the local district attorney, the local mayor, the people that actually have influence over crime. It's, it's not even sleight of hand. It's, it's too clumsy for that. Right. But that's his excuse It got so bad, not far from here in San Francisco, that the voters booted out the left-wing DA in a recall, not even close. It was a blowout. And it looked like they were maybe on track to do the same thing in L.A., but they couldn't get quite enough signatures. Seems like they botched that a little bit. The organizers did botch that, yes. Yeah, what's the crime status quo in this state? And is that an issue that is resonant? Because I think a lot of people who aren't listening right now to us in the state of California see and hear so much about this state and scratch their heads thinking, how is it possible that the Democrats continue to have this vice grip on power given this parade of failures out here? So, Guy, I came to California in 1994 to work for Pete Wilson. He was the governor at the time. And uh, 94 is kind of a seminal year in California in a couple regards. Uh, first of all, it was the year that we passed Proposition 187, the uh, immigration measure. But secondly, Guy, it's also the year that we passed the three strikes measure, both in legislature but also by popular vote. There was a just a bow wave of frustration over crime, uh, very high-profiled crimes, 94 also being the year that O.J. Simpson took the ride mm-hmm. up to 405. Uh, but you had this one case with this fellow named um, uh, Richard Allen Davis who had killed poor Polly Clark. And this became just the poster child for what was wrong in California. This guy was a repeat offender, just kept getting rotated in and out of prison, just revolving door justice, and eventually built up to the point where he kidnapped this poor young girl and killed her. And you see the same thing kind of building uh, in California right now. Um, what triggered the uh, San Francisco um, recall of the DA, Chase of Putin, uh, was that just people were in this revolving door of justice in San Francisco. It was one story guy of a woman who was finally arrested, and she'd had like 120 priors. I mean... <laughs> 
just she'd go in, they'd book her, and they'd send her back out, and she'd go out and shoplift and just back and forth and back and forth. Uh, and then finally, the mayor of the city, London Breed, had to say enough was enough because she saw the city crumbling and she saw her job on the line as well. Um, and I think you would have seen the same domino tumble in Los Angeles, if not the uh, organizers of the George Cascoon recall have just not screwed up the signature gathering. Uh, it's the frustration with a couple of things. Number one, just kind of nickel and dime crime, just your car getting broken into and a laptop being stolen. But then it becomes more terrifying than was your house being burglarized or the. And by the way, that stuff never gets solved right. or resolved. Right. And even if they catch the guy, he's right. out. Right, but it escalates, especially in Los Angeles now. People living in very rich pockets of the uh, of the city now having their homes broken into. In one case, a wife of a very prominent record producer was killed. I have very good friends who live in the Palisades. They're very left of center. They're not wild about law enforcement. They hate guns. But when um, the uh, BLM riots, this is the other part of the equation, the BLM riots in uh, 2020, uh, especially in Santa Monica, they called me and said, do you know how I can get a gun? In fact, one of the one of the busiest gun shops in California, guy, it's in Beverly Hills. Hmm. Interesting. And yet, it looks like Newsom's going to sail to re-election. Supermajorities in the state okay, legislature? Supermajorities in the legislature, Guy. We haven't uh, kicked a first-term governor out of office since 1942. Now, you're going to say, what, what about Gray Davis? He'd just been reelected the year before when Arnold came along at the recall. Uh, Ronald Reagan beat Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father, in 1966. He was going for a third term, so we give first-term governors a pass. We give them a second term. Also, Guy, you just look at the numbers. Democrats outnumber, in terms of registration, Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one in California. So for you to lose a statewide race as a Democrat, you have to be kind of inept. Well, alarmingly inept. Yeah, and I guess it's not the case this year, this cycle, and maybe hope springs eternal for next time. But it seems like they sort of play the the whole song and dance about how Republicans are evil and scary. And a lot of people say, "Okay, yeah, we agree. Let's just keep going with this this status quo." There are still things. I know people say, "Why bother with California? Why are we even having this conversation? It's irrelevant." No, there are still things relevant in the state politically. I would first of all look inside Newsom's numbers once he's reelected and see if that same Latino crack exists to see how he did versus 2018. And then, guy, I take you down to about four or five congressional races around the state and see if Republicans can hold the seats. They've gone back in 2020, having lost them in 2018. This would be a good sign of both whether or not there is a red wave or a red ripple. That will be a very good sign of how Democrats are able to do politics within a deeply blue state like California as well. If these Republicans resist it, that bodes well for the party in 2024. We'll be watching November 8th, although it'll probably be like November 20th before we know out here. It takes takes a month to certify votes because we have a lot of crazy rules about being able to turn in ballots the same day. You can mail in the ballot (laughs) within three days and count it. So we we do everything possible to allow people to vote in the state. Uh, I mean, that is one way of putting it for sure. So at some point, we'll know the answer to that question that you just raised and posed, and I think it's an interesting one. Bill Whalen, a distinguished policy fellow in journalism and a Hoover Institution research fellow since 1999 here and an expert on California politics. Bill, great to see you as always. Can I put on a plug here? Please. Uh, please watch the Hoover Goodfellows uh, show that I moderate. Uh, that's on YouTube. It features Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. We have a great episode out this week with Carl Rove talking about the political landscape. Rove mentioned that earlier in the week on this show, as a matter of fact. He plugged good, it. So a good, double plug. Good man. There we go. Bill Whalen, and the show is called? Goodfellows. On YouTube. Yes. It's a Hoover Institution production. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. So earlier, Eric Adams, who's the Democratic mayor of New York City, declared a state of emergency in his city over the number of illegal immigrants being bussed into New York from Texas and elsewhere. And he made a big announcement about it. He was talking about how unsustainable it is, how expensive it is, how it's going to be difficult when it comes to resources for longtime New Yorkers as money is being spent on this problem. 
and he did a lot of blaming other people for what is happening to his city while also trying to maintain the we're proud of our sanctuary city posture as well. So we are a sanctuary city. We're very tolerant. We're very welcoming. We're very open, all of those things. But also we hate this and it's unsustainable. I'm not really sure that those two sentiments can coexist. Certainly not for a long period of time. Bill Malugin, our colleague here at Fox News, notes that this sanctuary city, New York, felt compelled to declare an emergency after about 17,000 migrants had arrived over the last six months, bust in from Texas, from the state level, from the city of El Paso, which is run by Democrats. He notes that 17,000 number in peak months is approximately what comes across the Texas border in three to four days alone on average. So 17,000 over months in New York City versus 17,000 over less than a week in Texas. And the mayor of New York is saying it's unsustainable and declaring a state of emergency. He also said this, which is just remarkable. It's staggering in the lack of self-awareness. Here's Mayor Adams earlier, cut 32. New Yorkers are angry. I am angry, too. We have not asked for this. There was never any agreement to take on the job of supporting thousands of asylum seekers. This responsibility was simply handed to us without warning as buses began showing up. Absolutely amazing. We didn't ask for this. There was no agreement on this. These thousands of asylum seekers. Notice how he calls them all asylum seekers. We know that the large majority of asylum seeking claims do not pan out and are rejected. They're just euphemizing illegal immigrants calling them asylum seekers when only a fraction of them have a legitimate claim for asylum. That's a rhetorical game that they're playing. These are overwhelmingly illegal immigrants who broke our laws. And then he just bemoans the notion that the responsibility to deal with these people was just handed to the city of New York without warning because the buses started showing up. We didn't ask for this. There was no agreement. It's almost as if he is feeling the frustration that communities at the border have been experiencing much worse for the last two years or so. This is precisely the point that Governor Abbott and others have been trying to prove. And Adams, I just don't know if he's unaware of this. He, he doesn't recognize that these sound bites. I know he's trying to blame Texas. He's trying to blame anything but the actual problem, which is the crisis and the policies causing the crisis, which are coming from his party. But his complaints are exactly the complaints that people in Texas and Arizona and elsewhere have been making based on the totally unsustainable crisis that they didn't ask for, that they didn't agree to, a responsibility that was just thrust upon them as people showed up without warning, day after day in waves. And Adams seems to think this is an indictment of the officials in Texas, not the officials responsible for the border crisis, sitting in Washington, D.C., members of his own party. Another inadvertent, helpful statement, I would say, to the border crisis debate by New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Hats off, Mr. Mayor. Keep doing what you're doing. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming right up. H.R. McMaster, former Trump National Security Advisor, joins me straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour here on The Guy Benson Show on this Friday. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcasts always free on demand every day. No charge to you. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me on Media Buzz this Sunday on Fox News Channel. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Terrific. Delicious. Alcoholic. So 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. Well, joining us now is H.R. McMaster. He is the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. We've been broadcasting here all week long. He was the 26th Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. He is author of the book Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. He also hosts an interview podcast series by the same name on foreign policy and national security. And, General, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Hey, Guy. It's great to be with you. Thanks for coming out to Hoover. Love it is my you. pleasure. It is such a great place to be. Stanford is beautiful. Everyone at Hoover has been just terrific, and we're grateful for your time as well here. I have to start by asking you about this reported quote from the President of the United States speaking yesterday at a fundraiser for the Democratic Party in New York. He said, quote, Putin was not joking when he talks about the use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons. We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. So we've got the president at a political fundraiser just sort of spitballing, shooting from the hip on nukes and Armageddon. I just wonder what your reaction is to what the president said and the point that he's making about Putin and what you think of that. Well, I think it's really unwise, Guy. I mean, I think, why, why, why would you play into Putin's hands? This is the only thing Putin has left, right? He has, he has coercive power associated with energy, right? You saw that with the, the blow-up of the Nord Stream pipeline, which is really a message to Europe. Hey, you know, you know, I, I can affect your energy supplies. And, it was, it was, and, of course, that was done on the same day that a new pipeline opened between Norway and Denmark and, and Poland. But what else, what else does he have left? I mean, he's failing utterly in Ukraine, thanks to the, the courageous Ukrainians. And, and he, has, he just has his nuclear saber to rattle. And so why play into his hands? I mean, what I would have loved to hear the president have said is like, hey, hey, Vladimir Putin, if you use a nuclear weapon, it's a suicide weapon. And we have means of responding that are not nuclear that could, that could end, you know, you know, <laughs> end, end your, 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 uh, your time as a leader in, in, in Russia. So I, I really think, you know, it should have been a message of strength, not playing in uh, to, to, you know, to Putin's you know, use of, of sort of, uh, you know, you know, a threat of nuclear uh, of, of the use of a nuclear weapon. You are a student of history. You taught history at West Point. When you see the president, or at least the reports of the president from the reporters in the room, invoking the Cuban Missile Crisis and that very severe crisis in that moment in our history decades ago, do you think it's applicable here? I'm just trying to figure out how this Armageddon line, the Cuban Missile Crisis, how it necessarily applies to the situation, even if you think that Putin might be considering tactical nukes in Ukraine? Well, what's really, what's really important is to, to obviously deter an actor like, like Putin. I mean, P Putin is not completely irrational. 
And I think what is what is important is for us to have all the means available to respond that are that are nuclear, but also non-nuclear. And and uh, when when um, when we when I was national security advisor and, and at the beginning of the Trump administration, we did an assessment of our nuclear posture. It's called the Nuclear Posture Review. There's a, there's a public-facing, unclassified version of this. I think it's worth taking a look at. And what we did is we actually addressed directly this Russian strategy, Putin strategy of what he calls escalation domination or escalate to de-escalate. And he's been talking about this for years. And basically what he, what he's, what he says is, hey, you know, what we, what we could do is we could use a tactical nuclear weapon in Europe, for example, if we wanted to attack the Baltic states, if Russia wants to attack the Baltic states, and just say to the United States, okay, hey, this is your choice. Sue for peace on our terms or, or face you know, nuclear Armageddon. Well, we need means of responding to that threat, and that's what we laid out in the Nuclear Posture Review, and that's why we invested more in our own range of nuclear weapons, but also a range of other capabilities that would deter Russia. What the Biden administration has done is they have defunded some of those aspects of our nuclear readiness, and I think you know this is time for a wake-up call to say, hey, the assumptions on which the Biden administration you know, based their nuclear posture review, that they based their national defense strategy, which has not been published yet, there's a classified version, but there's not really much out in the public domain. You know, they were wrong, you know, and so it's time for a reassessment of national security and our defense strategy. How specific should any U.S. administration get in terms of dealing with a rogue actor like this, in terms of pushing back and saying, I guess the line that you just shared a moment ago was, if you use a nuclear weapon, the U.S. talking to Putin, it's a suicide weapon, basically saying you're done at that point. What does that mean exactly, and, and how granular do you get in your counter threat, or do you keep it vague, and what should the U.S. be prepared to do if he does pull that trigger? You know, I, I think it's, it's a, it, you should be vague about it, right? You shouldn't talk specifically about what you, you're going to do or not do. And this is the problem the Biden administration had, you know, really between August of last year and February 23rd of this year, when after which, you know, Russia renewed its invasion of Ukraine. They, they listed everything they weren't going to do. And it was crazy. Mm-hmm. We pulled our, our forces out of the Black Sea. You know, we, we said, OK, we're not going to become directly involved in conflict. We're not. We pulled our advisors back, right? We closed our embassy, right? It's almost as if we were greenlighting the invasion. So, I think what you want to do is create a certain degree of ambiguity, but but demonstrate resolve, right? And and to to make clear that there are going to be unacceptable consequences for Russia. You know, Russia. I mean, Putin is extremely weak, right? He's extremely weak. This is the only thing he has. Now, it's significant. He's got the most destructive weapons on earth. Uh, and we have to take it seriously. But I think we ought to make clear to him, hey, it, it is a suicide weapon. If you use it, I think that's I, I think that's enough to say. In fact, actually, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, two, uh, two weeks ago, made a statement about the nuclear threat that was dead on. But the problem is, you know, then you have President Biden say something like he said yesterday. It's almost as if the, you know, the best, you know, the, the, you know, the best message for the for the administration to put out is exactly the opposite of what the president says. That's what's become the norm. Well, I can imagine it is frustrating, and you might know something about this, to have a very carefully crafted statement on something that you put out there, and then the president says something very different uh, a little while later, and that gets all the headlines. It probably rings a few bells for you, if I had to guess, and now we're seeing that with the subsequent administration as well. On the Ukrainian side of this, General, you know, we've been talking about Putin. We've been talking about Russia. I think the speech that he gave recently in Moscow really pointed toward ambitions, really delusions far beyond just Ukraine. 
That being said, it's extremely personal and it's very reasonable, I think, for the Ukrainians myopically to be looking at themselves, their territorial sovereignty, the future of that country, their people. They've been winning. I mean, it's been incredible what they've done so far. There are some people in the United States on both ends of the political spectrum, especially kind of, I don't want to call them fringe elements. There's, there's a good number of people, very left, very right, who say it is not a good use of our tax dollars, certainly at this point anymore, to keep sending more and more funds and weapons to the Ukrainians. What do you think of that? What's your response when you start to hear that kind of criticism? Well, I think it's really important to explain to the American people how you know, the, the, the fate of the Ukrainians is, is connected to our interests. And we've had Putin, who since he's come into power almost I mean, over, 20, over 20 years ago, uh, almost 25 years ago, uh, engaged in, in a sustained effort to subvert you know, the, the United States, uh, our, our Europe, you know, Europe, the transatlantic relationship, NATO, the European Union. And really, Putin's theory of victory, like he knows he doesn't have like the economy, he doesn't, he doesn't have the resources to compete with us directly. What he wants to do is drag everybody else down under the theory that he could be sort of the last man standing, so to speak, in, in, in Europe and in the world. And, and, uh, and we have to prevent him from doing that. I mean, every time somebody talks about giving Putin an off-ramp, I just want to say, hey, that's not wise, because when Putin takes an off-ramp, he's just looking for the next on-ramp. And I think this is the time now rather than give him an off-ramp, to tape his foot to the accelerator right, and help him drive into the brick wall that he's headed for. And then I think Europe and the world will be a much safer place. Also, it's really important to, to recognize how Russia is connected to a, a group of authoritarian regimes who are a risk to, a threat to all civilized people. I mean, look at, look at really, we, I, mean, I think Americans should read is the statement, the joint statement that Putin and, and Xi Jinping of China put out on the eve of the Beijing Olympics. You know what the message was? The message was, hey, you guys are over. The United States, you're done. This is our era. This is a new era of international relations, and we're in charge now. Well, how's that working out for them right now? Yeah. Uh, Putin has created a disaster, and China is, has a huge economic crisis. So I, I think this is the moment for us to step up. And, of course, you have Iran, right? Iran, which has been conducting a a four-decade-long proxy war against the United States, well, their Arab neighbors in Israel. I mean, they're providing drones to Russia, right? They're, 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 these are this is this is really a, a, an alliance that that is really on its way down, and we ought to help it. You know, we ought to we ought to tie Ukraine around their necks like a, like a lodestone, and, and and help them go to the bottom. Because I mean, if not, I mean, I think that that they'd be even even more dangerous in the future. You just mentioned Iran. My next question was on Iran. Chapter 9 of your book, Battlegrounds, is on the JCPOA and negotiations with the Iranians. Obviously, the Trump administration took a profoundly different approach to dealing with Iran in the region than the previous, the Obama administration, or the subsequent, the Biden administration, uh, have and had done. And it seems to me that at the moment you're seeing this protest movement in the streets women risking their lives for their freedoms in that country, the regime being brutal and bloodthirsty as they often are. And it just feels bizarre that the U.S. government, the Biden administration at this moment continues to negotiate with this regime through the Russians of all people at this exact moment in pursuit of a deal that broadly is seen as even weaker than what we saw under Obama, is give us your thoughts and your assessment of this administration's posture vis-a-vis -vis Iran. 
you know, it, it's bizarre. It's humiliating. It's it's shameful what they're what they're doing. I mean, so that you have members of the administration supplicating to the Iranians, you know, as they're they're killing women, you know, for not wearing you know not wearing the hijab properly. While they're, I mean, I think the estimates are that they've killed about two hundred of the of the protesters, and and what what the administration is doing is scrambling to get a really bad nuclear deal. Uh, that wouldn't do anything really to block Iran's path to, to a nuclear weapon. I mean, it's, it's clear that the Iranians don't honor uh, any agreement, right? They're not going to allow an, an inspection, a verification regime that would give us any kind of assurance that they don't have the most destructive weapons on Earth. They're, you know, their missile program is, is advancing. You know, they're, they're using actually a drone you know, missile complex against Saudi Arabia and UAE, which they're kind of perfecting. You know, they're selling these suicide drones. Uh, to, to the Russians who are employing them against uh, against uh, against Ukrainians. I mean, they, they just attacked a massive. The, the, the Russians did a massive apartment complex um, in in in, uh, in Ukraine with Iranian drones, and we're trying to get them sanctions relief, so they'll have billions and billions of more dollars to apply to their four decade long proxy war against us. I mean, it's. Why? I, like, I mean, why are they doing this? Like, I could understand back in the Obama years, maybe they had these these thoughts and these fantasies in their minds about sort of a realignment in the region, and maybe we can kind of contain the Iranian threat. But the world changed dramatically again under the Trump administration. The Abraham Accords, that was the actual realignment that moved the Middle East in a very significant way. And it just feels like Team Biden is stuck in 2009, but even weaker. I I just don't understand the fixation here. It's like some weird fetish that they can't get over on this foreign policy goal that just seems in some ways like obsolete, like the moment has long passed for what they're pursuing here. Hey, Guy, what, what, I, I write about this extensively in Battlegrounds. This is strategic narcissism, right? The tendency to define the world only in relation to us and to assume that what we do or choose not to do is decisive toward achieving a, 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 the desired outcome. And, and I think many of the people in this administration, uh, I would say that they're afflicted by a strain of self-loathing. I mean, I really think they believe that we are the problem in the world. And therefore, if we disengage from the Middle East, if we're nicer to the Iranians, right, they, I think they believe that, you know, the Supreme Leader, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, that, that if we disengage from Iran, that his, he'll be like the Grinch on Christmas Eve. Like his heart will grow two sizes bigger, you know, and, and it'll stop, you know, the, the, the four-decade-long proxy war against us and, and stop the support for Hezbollah and, and, and Hamas and what they're doing in the West Bank now, the support for the Houthis in Yemen, the, the proxy wars that they're fighting across the region, the proxy army that they have in Syria perpetuating you know, the serial episodes of mass homicide there, you know, the undermining of, 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 of Iraq. I mean, this is not, none of this is going to stop with, with some kind of an agreement. And, and these people are delusional, you know, and guys are the same people, right? The same people have come back in from the Obama administration to implement, you know, what was a bad policy then, and it's an even worse policy now. Former Trump National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show from the Hoover Institution. I want to get to China next right after this. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. H.R. McMaster is my guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Finally, on China, there are so many different ways we could take this conversation. We only have so much time left. I noted on the program earlier in the week that China was able to rally a slim majority of the so-called Human Rights Council at the U.N., which I think is just a sick joke, to vote against 
an investigation of the genocide that they're committing, the CCP, against Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Uh, that was a diplomatic victory, it seemed, for the Chinese at Turtle Bay. Meanwhile, the predations in the South China Sea continue. There's concern about Taiwan, obviously. Suggestions that the U.S. should start ramping up weapons transfers and sales to the Taiwanese as soon as possible to make at least the prospect of an invasion more unpleasant and maybe more daunting for China as they're calculating timing and whether to do it. What is your bottom line on China? Well, I mean, you know, hard power matters, guy. I mean, the, the, we, what we need is we need forward position, capable forces that are able to operate for you know, at, at, at sufficient scale and duration to show to the Chinese you can't accomplish your objectives in the use of force in the South China Sea or in, in, in Taiwan. And what, what I've seen is a lot of talk, you know, a lot of talk by the Biden administration, but, but not enough action in terms of real investments in defense. And, and you know, it really matters. I mean, I think that you know, it's important for Americans to understand that China wants to own the ocean in the South China Sea. And that's an area through which one-third of the world's surface trade flows. China wants to, to create exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific and challenge the United States globally. So it's time now for everybody to recognize the, how important this competition is. And you know what, I, I think we should be confident. You know, if we make the right investments in defense and we compete economically, I think you see some, some actually very good movement in Washington these days, bipartisan movement, uh, and the administration's doing, I think, a good job on understanding how to use our economic tools that we have available uh, to be able to compete more effectively. But, you know, for too long, you know, we operated under this assumption that, hey, China, once we welcome them into the international world, they're going to play by the rules, right? And, and if they prosper, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll liberalize our economy and they'll liberalize our form of governance. Okay, now we know that's not the case. Yeah, and I think that that was a fair degree of naivete from administrations on both sides of the aisle. And I think that the course correction that you're talking about is needed and perhaps overdue. Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution, he was the national security advisor to President Trump. And his book is Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. General, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Hey, Guy, great to be with you. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues next. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. In our first hour here on today's Guy Benson Show, we interviewed Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, up for re-election this year in the Sunshine State. We covered a lot of ground with Senator Rubio. Here's part of that exchange. What can you tell us about what's happening now, the sort of like the latest developments down there? Well, I think power is now restored to all but about just a little under 200,000 customers in the whole state. So it's very impressive work done there. And that really matters. Look, I think the thing you learn as a veteran of these storms, having lived through them personally and just have experienced so many of them as, a, as an elected official here, is once you get power and phones going, you know, the phones work, the power's back on, life gets a little easier because now it's easier to communicate. It's obviously easier to find food. You don't have to be doing some of these things. So that's really essential. Now, obviously, for people that have lost everything, I mean, we have homes and entire areas, North, uh, North Fort Myers, Sanibel, just wiped out. I mean, honestly, that, that is a total rebuild. I mean, it's total destruction. And, um, and obviously, you know, thousands and thousands of people affected, not to mention people who have lost their lives. That effort is ongoing. Uh, not just probably some more recovery that's left in terms of, unfortunately, those who lost their lives, but, but also, you know, the medical examiner having to go through that now and sort of identify which ones were storm-related and, and which ones were not. But nonetheless, I mean, loss of life, it's very real. So this is a long-term 
recovery for many parts of this area. And then there's things people don't even think about a lot of times, and that is the impact it's had on agriculture. Florida, you know, agriculture in counties like Polk County and and areas of the large citrus and, and other growth, and, and, and in addition to some of the cattle and, and, and livestock areas uh, in some of the inland counties that saw flooding just in the low-lying areas near the, the, the Peace River and the like. And that's also incalculable at this point. It's been pretty devastating. I've noticed, Senator, that your opponent is trying to get into the politics of the hurricane and post-hurricane relief. You've been knocked because in the past you voted against relief packages that you said were wasteful. I couldn't help but notice a piece today in the Miami Herald, though. Demings, so Val Demings, of course, your opponent, knocks Rubio for missing hurricane relief vote, but she opposed some similar bills herself. I wonder if she's kind of opened herself up, actually, on this front. Yeah, so I've never opposed hurricane relief. I've opposed things that have nothing to do with hurricane relief. So what we do here is pretty simple. First, you have an emergency response. There's an emergency response to the moment, and these are things you need immediately. We need to put blue tarps on roofs. We need to you know, help get people the medicine, temporary shelter, and so forth. I'm in favor of all of that. Unfortunately, what's happened in the past is they come up with these bills, and then they say, okay, let's add some other stuff to it that has nothing to do with that storm. Maybe a storm somewhere else, maybe not even a storm at all, but let's use it to rebuild buildings. Um, let's put a roof back on the Smithsonian that got damaged in the storm. Well, that's not emergency relief. That, that, that is the kind of thing that you do as a second wave of assistance when you go through a normal process of assessing, okay, what's a worthy project for government to be involved in and which one is not. And so that was the problem I had with Sandy originally. It's not that the state of New Jersey was asking for it that way, but there were legislators that said, okay, let's jump on this train and get some stuff for, that is unrelated. And I'm not voting for that stuff. So we, we're going to put out pretty clearly what we think Florida needs on an emergency basis first. And then there is the rebuilding part. And all of that should go through a normal process where we check it out and make sure that it's real and not wasteful because it's not our money. It's taxpayer money. And, uh, that, and you know, again, these, the hypocrisy here is, runs deep, right? I mean, she voted for against bills that had hurricane relief in the past, including relief for Puerto Rico and Florida, uh, because she didn't like other things in the bill as well. But that hypocrisy has never stopped leftists and, like her uh, from making these attacks. And frankly, you know, they get a lot of uh, protection by the mainstream media who sort of ignores those things and never asks them those questions. Yeah, I mean, it's always like microphone in your face as a Republican. What about this? What about that? It's like the you know the talking points come down from the DSCC and the reporters come rushing out to ask the question. Is it doesn't seem to really work the other way all that often. Speaking of your opponent Val Demings, I've watched your race from a distance here. I've thought all along that you're going to prevail. You're going to win. I know that they're throwing a ton of money at you. She's raised a lot of money from progressives all over the country who can't stand you. They want to throw you out of the Senate. I think they'll fail, but they're really trying with mountains of cash. When you boil it down, though, to her record in the House of Representatives, I really made a good faith effort to try to find important, meaningful examples of her voting, Val Demings voting, in a way that was not just lockstep Pelosi-Biden on anything of importance. And I really struggled to find anything. It just seems like she is a loyal, reflexive Pelosi-Biden Democrat that they put up against you in Florida, and just based on the way Florida votes and the way Florida especially is feeling politically these days, I'm not really sure that's a great recipe for success for her. Yeah, so there's a reason why she doesn't want people to know she's a member of Congress, right? I mean, she doesn't ever talk about her congressional record or the work she's done. She doesn't want anybody to know she's a member of the House, not like last week, like for the last six years. 
because two reasons. Number one, she's never gotten anything done, nothing meaningful. Most people, until she spent a bunch of money on commercials, no one even heard of her because she never done anything. She's never been involved in anything important for her community or for the state, not to mention for the country. But number two, because of what you just said, she votes 100 percent of the time with Pelosi. I mean, Pelosi says, this is what I want. This is what she does. That's why Schumer wants her in the Senate. I mean, Schumer doesn't just want a Democrat. He wants a Democrat that is going to do what he says. Like on any given issue, he doesn't care what your opinion is. You can campaign on whatever you want. And that's not just in Florida. It's everywhere. But when you get up there, they all fall in line. They all vote down the party line, and that's what they want. And if they can get 51 votes in the Senate, then they can pass anything they want. And that includes, like, change the rules so they can, at that point, pass with simple majorities anything, like packing the Supreme Court, taking over our election systems. That's why they want her. That's what her record is, 100 percent with Pelosi. Whatever Pelosi wants, and that's what she's going to be for Schumer, and and that's a real stark choice here, you know. And and in this race, I have a record of doing real things, like accomplishments that have been ranked as high as anybody in the Senate. And you know, at the end of the day, I always vote with what I think is the right thing. And and, and there's been times when I don't vote the way McConnell votes on an issue or, or what have you, but because I don't think it's the right thing in that particular case. And uh, she can't say that. My full interview with Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our free podcast, on demand every day, no charge, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch wrapping up the week here from Palo Alto, California. I learned something new about Christine last night. We'll talk about that and more next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on this Friday. Happy almost weekend. Thank you so much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is available free of charge to you every day on demand, including bonus Benson over the weekend. So we are wrapping up our time here at the Hoover Institution. We've had a terrific experience, as has always been the case. And actually earlier today, not only did I speak to a group of students and young people who are focused on the issue of school choice here at Hoover, producer Christine was also part of this presentation. We did a panel. We were asked questions. And, Christine, you said it was your first ever speaking engagement. Yes. I'm excited to hit the road with you now. Were you nervous? Um, No, because I like to talk. So, And it wasn't really a huge crowd. It was Mm-mm. sort of an intimate group, some interesting questions. Yeah. But they were picking Cookie's brain, which is sort of uh, an interesting development. Yeah. I should ask you, were you nervous to be sitting up there with me? In a way, yes. Really? Like, what is she going to say? <laughs> or do we have – what is she going to fill the kids' brains with? But I, I thought it went pretty well. I think so. And they seem to enjoy it. They ask good questions. So that was a cool opportunity here. Also, last night, we went out to dinner. It was sort of like our closing dinner here in Palo Alto. And we went and got some steak. Some prime rib is really good, actually. It was really good. And we went with some of the folks here at Hoover who have been helping us all week and also who helped bring us out here in the first place. It was a good little group, a lot of fun. And we were talking at one point. Unsurprisingly, there were uh, some cocktails ordered. I mean, shocker. And then some wine ordered as well. Oh, that was good wine. It was. It really was. And producer Christine was... What, a lemon drop in and mm-hmm. maybe another glass of wine in at that point. Yeah. Plus you had a glass of bubbly beforehand. So I think we were three drinks deep for Christine. Thank you, Guy. 
when a story – well, it's, it's important context. Oh, is it? Extremely important context for the audience to understand where this next anecdote came from. You shared with us something that I had not heard about you before, which is your husband has had printed up – would you call them business cards or – I. I call them business cards. I'm not really sure. Are they the size of like a yes. traditional business card? Yeah. Okay. So he had them printed up. Uh-huh. How long has he been doing this for? Uh, it's been going on for for quite some time. Years. Yeah. We had to do a second, you know, round of cards. Oh, too. another second printing. printing. A second printing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he made up some business cards mm-hmm. that he will sometimes hand to strangers. So if we're at an event, you know, or I remember I hosted a baby shower once for a good friend of mine, and there were a lot of people there I didn't know. So, of course, I'm making plans with them. And by the end of the baby shower, I'm going to Napa with this couple. I think I jumped on a family, a Disney family vacation with another couple. Uh, I just make so a you, lot of plans. So you have perhaps had a few drinks. Oh, yeah. You get very, very friendly with people. Uh-huh. And you start making social plans with them yep. while overserved. Yes. Okay. And so because of all of that, Bobby, I guess, ran into this scenario enough that he printed up business cards. Describe these cards to the audience. So it's a picture of me on the front, and I'm uh, double fisting drinks. So I have a drink in each hand, and I I think I'm dancing or I, I don't know. I'm making some silly face. So that's the front of the card. It doesn't say anything else. And on the back of a card is a message to whoever received the card. And it said, to whom it may concern, if you've received this card, that means my wife has made, you know, drunk plans with you. Um, We're sorry. She cannot help herself, but all plans are null and void. So this was happening so often. Oh, yeah. That he felt the need not to sort of maybe curtail the mama's juice, but to come up with a system where he could just hand off like a little note to someone Mm -hmm. on the reg being like, hey, whatever you guys just plan to do together, it's not happening. Sorry. She's she's had a few too many, and we'll see you next time. Maybe on the sober side. Do they laugh at this? Are they? Is it nervous laughter? Yeah, I think that some people question it. Uh, At the baby shower that I had hosted, um, I had made – like little parting gifts, you know, for everybody leaving. And Bobby, as he was handing out the homemade jam, he was handing out business cards. I see. Saying so, goodbye. Here you go. Yes, everyone needed one, I guess, that night. Yeah, that was a interesting night. I'm wondering, should I have these as well? Like, obviously not referring to you as my wife, but like my colleague. Well, I mean, let's be perfectly honest. If I'm drunk while we're working, that's a problem. True, but this was a work trip, right? So I came downstairs at the hotel a few nights ago, and you had made friends with a new woman over drinks. And Deneen. I was like, yeah, d- did Deneen need a card about any you know plans you guys had made together? I just don't know how often <laughs> I might need to you know, run some interference here the way Bobby has to do. I just find the whole thing fascinating. I asked for one of these cards. I want to see one. And you thought you might have one in your purse, but you didn't. I guess Bobby is the keeper of the cards. Bobby's the keeper of the card. I know my mother, she loves showing everybody. Oh, look at this. Look what my son-in-law made about my daughter. Very proud. A proud mother. What a proud mom. Yeah. Very supportive. She doesn't drink at all. Nothing. Nothing. Her claim to fame is she's never had a sip of beer. Ever. Never. 
and she brags about that. Yes. She probably likes to hold that over you. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, she always. Christine, you have. Uh, <laughs> sorry about my drunk wife business cards printed up, but Joyce here, Judgy Joyce, never touched even a sip of beer. No, she. But she makes for a very good um, designated driver. That's probably true. She's not a great driver. Sorry, mom. She drives with uh, one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas at all times. What? Yeah, that's her driving. That's like no. That's, it's bad. That's like sociopathic. That is yeah. definitely a hard. But when you're no. a few, and you, you don't even realize it. Drinks? No, me. You know, it's not. I'm not bothered by oh, it. Oh, you're because you're in the back seat, just yeah. sort of like she's getting me from point A to point B. But what happens if you panic at some point and slam both feet down? It's been done. That's crazy. The yeah. whole like the first thing they teach you in driver's ed is you put your left foot like away from the two pedals and you use your right foot. You go back and forth. You pick a foot. I've always used my right foot and you alternate so you know which one you're pressing. Not Judgy Joyce. No. It's just one foot on. What school did she go to? The school of driving. My father, may he rest in peace, used to say that all the time. <laughs> because also, don't forget, when your foot is on the brake all the time, you're killing the brakes. Yeah, it, that that's a crazy. It's not great. That is a crazy way to drive, and yet, you are more than willing to avail yourself of her services as a designated driver. Safety first. Safety, well, a different kind of safety, I guess. <laughs> it's all relative. I need Bobby needs to text me like an image of these cards. I am very eager to see this. In fact, I almost wonder if that front side of the card with the photo of you double fisting, I wonder if that should make it onto your Twitter feed. I don't know about that. You've been tweeting some photos. Yes. I'm going to tweet a photo of you and I up on the panel oh, talking. Okay. What's the Twitter handle again? At Cookies Jar 1988. At Cookies Jar 1988. People should follow and look at some of our adventures here at Stanford and at Hoover, and maybe <laughs> we'll get the double fisting photo. Maybe if she's unwilling to post it, maybe I'll put it on, on my Twitter feed. I don't know if we need to do that necessarily. But well, uh, maybe I, it's up to Bobby if he wants to send me some photos. I know he listens to the home stretch every day. Do not text Bobby. I'm not going to text him, but he can text me. <laughs> Bobby, you have my number. It's, you, you, we know, I think inquiring minds need to know what this card looks like. Do you remember why you two had to exchange numbers? Oh, yeah. It was one of your... Uh... When I sent you to the wrong hotel in Atlanta. Uh -oh. Well, you sent equipment to the wrong hotel. Oh, right. You sent all, like crucial broadcasting equipment to the wrong hotel in Atlanta. And then didn't answer when you called and called. And you were on airplane mode, one of your many airplane mode moments. It happens. Moments. Doesn't it happen to you? Never. No, never? Never. I only put airplane mode on. When on an airplane? On an airplane. Hmm. I don't put airplane mode on when I am at home or asleep or anything like that if I might need an urgent you know, phone call from someone like a colleague or something. I don't know. Like your radio host. Yes. <laughs> In a pretty big emergency. Because I don't really call you after hours very often, no. ever. No, sometimes you get a call from me. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. You know what I think about yes. the show and yes. what we should do? And... Yes, and then Bobby sends me a card <laughs> saying, like, whatever she just said, it's not going to happen. But it does seem unusual that... When I do call you after hours for business, disproportionately, you are unavailable. And I have had to go through your husband a few different times. At some point, I'm going to get your daughter's number, too, because she's, <laughs> she's going to have to 
take care. Does she have a cell phone yet? Or is... Not yet. We're getting it uh, this April for her, for her 10th birthday. Oh, 10. Mm-hmm. Was that what she was told? Like, once you're 10, you She's can do this? She's been asking for years. And I know it's very controversial. You know, 10 seems young. 10 is early. Yeah. I didn't but... get one until I was driving. But it's also a different world. Oh, it's totally. Yeah, I didn't get one until I was probably 18. Yeah. I mean, that's a long time ago. I think 16 for me is when I got my permit. Is when I, look, we're just like rambling about nothing here. How do we get on this? We're talking about driving. We're talking about booze. We're talking about the I'm sorry my wife is drunk cards. I mean, it's just everywhere. Airplane mode. Actually, we have to go on airplane mode very soon. Heading back to the airport, back to the East Coast. I've got TV on Sunday, Media Buzz, in the 11 a.m. hour on set with Howie Kurtz, Fox News Channel. Back here on the radio. Same time, same place on Monday for more of The Guy Benson Show from our home base in Washington, D.C. Have a great weekend. Stay sane. Stay safe. We'll talk to you then. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.